Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and our guest today is the amazing Alfred Chuang, founder and general partner at Raise Capital. Recognized by Anderson Horowitz as Silicon Valley CEO CEO, Alfred is an accomplished entrepreneur having co-founded and taken BEA Systems public before it was acquired by Oracle in 2008. Prior to BEA, Alfred spent 8 years at Sun Microsystems and during his tenure, Sun grew from 1000 people to over 60000 people. Alfred has been honored with awards including Silicon Valley Philanthropist of the Year, ST Forum Visionary Award, and CIO Magazine 2020 Vision Award. Alfred received a bachelor's in computer science from the University of San Francisco and a master's degree in computer science from the University of California Davis. Join me as we explore what Alfred loves about a startup's journey from 0 to 1. How Web3 is going to change software, why economic downturns present a hidden opportunity for investors, importance of operational experience for aspiring venture capitalists and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Alfred, good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Where are you calling in from? I'm calling from a town near Palo Alto. Let's dive right into the questions, right? You have had an amazing career, but for our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career to date? Sounds great. I uh, part of it is very traditional, part's kind of um, unconventional. So, uh, like a lot of the people that work in tech, I was a student here. Uh, I have an undergraduate and a graduate degree that was um, from California. So, I had a master degree in computer science from UC Davis, and after I graduated. Back then, it was a very customary thing that I ended up getting a job. The job that I got was with a company called Sun Microsystems. Some of you may not remember who Sun is, but Sun was a quintessential computer company. It's like uh, you got into Amazon plus uh, Google plus Facebook combined at the time because there were few uh, tech companies like that that has such a big software and a hardware component. So I was there for a long time, eight and a half years. Did a lot of variety of different things, and towards the end of their career, I was mostly focused on helping the company um, running a group to deploy our computers and our software into large enterprises, replacing the mainframe. And through that process, I have to invent some software. Um, at the time, we have you know very nascent distribution technology, you know, literally distributing the database. And compute for workload. Now it's every day's business. But back then it was a very unusual thing, even in the same data center, the same room. So this software got invented. Sun decided not to get into the business. So I, along with two other co-founders, started the company called BEA Systems with it. We were very fortunate um, that we had backing, and eventually a firm in New York called Walker Pinkers have invested a total of fifty million dollars in us, and that became history. We went public after three years. And then the company then pivoted itself a couple of times into the web space. Uh, market cap peaked at fifty-eight billion. This is uh, we talk about two, year two thousand money, and then it continued to be able to evolve and succeed. And we got to basically over six hundred million dollars a quarter in revenue, uh, and then it got sold um, to Oracle um, in two thousand and eight. So I was CEO for a long time. Um, went through forty-four quarters uh, as a public company, um, kind of. Guy, I learned a lot in that process. So the company got sold. I did a variety of different things, but mostly in investing into small angel companies for a very long period of time. Racked up a very large portfolio, and mostly it's had to do with some coaching of the CEO 
and then be able to buy a small portion of the company upfront very early. So I got totally addicted in this process. And then eventually I met my uh, our two founders at Race Capital. And the last three years has just been a um, whirlwind, remarkable ride. Um, I'm having a time of my life and I can't believe that I got so lucky to be able to do this. Yeah. Almost every venture that I have been a part of, be it Sun Microsystems to BEA to Magnet, has been successful. Can you shed light on how does one take something from zero to one, which is said to be the hardest part, and then from one to hundred? Um, without a doubt, because um, I, you know, Race has um, now invested in a total of thirty some uh, thirty five companies, and all we see is a zero to one process. So zero to one process is the most painful process because you're looking for that initial liftoff and a product market fit, and you have to take your invention and technology. And applying it for the first time is your validation that people wanted and needed it as you thought it would be. I just happened to love that process. And uh, for BEA, the mission was very clear. Um, I have always wanted to kill the mainframe. So, by the way, this, this mainframe thing is still you being used by large banks um, in large logistical corporations, uh, transportation. They're still alive after 60 plus years in existence. But mainframes processing are mostly batch-oriented. So you think, why sometimes when we go to the bank, they will say, your transaction won't be clear until tomorrow. It's just, just simply not logical. You say, well, why would the computer just run the transaction that we're done with? By the time I walk out, you know, the transfer or deposit should have happened instantly. It doesn't because we are um, impaired technologically because of the way that it works. So by BEA, my mission was to change that. Well, is to distribute out the transaction and to take it to as real time as humanly possible. And I think that process, I knew if we were successful, the world wouldn't be in the same place. And that enabling factor basically uh, became the most important thing in the web because once we went from reading, using the browser of the content of the web, the thing that obviously would be logical, which is what we do every day, is running transactions on the web, buying stuff or doing banking transactions, um, provisioning new telephone numbers, or having the truck drivers reroute and do other things. So to me, that was just such a quintessential thing in the process. And I think similarly, in my, in my actual subsequent experience, that was what I really was addicted to. You know, like compared to running you know, a, a large public company with 6,000 people, um, the enjoyment of having been very scrappy and hands-on and making decisions on the fly and be able to cost correct was the thing that I really liked the most. So eventually it just led to running my current startup, which is Race Capital. I look at it more like a startup, even though our fund has gone a lot bigger and that we've been added now with several funds several times. It's still, it just, oh, the joy is remarkable. You just have to be also have very good co-founders, people that are compatible with you. Then every day when you wake up is a new excitement that we're kind of like waiting for you. Can you talk to our listeners about Race Capital? And it's philosophy that all products and services will ultimately be improved through software. Race Capital in many ways is um, just like yet another seed, pre-seed stage um, tech venture firm. Um, it was formed in 2019 and uh, it forms based on a bunch of interesting circumstances. One, uh, I was advised to uh, one of my partners, Edith Young, she had a, a fund inside a 500 um, global umbrella. And just in serendipity, she and I are both originally from Hong Kong. So we um, were planning to do some nonprofit work together to help um, 
new entrepreneurs in Hong Kong. And uh, something obviously I got noticed was the, her work. And she was uh, one of the earliest investors in what we now called uh, the Web3 Layer 1 companies. Um, so Solana, was, she was one of the very first investors in Solana. And I happened to be kind of interested in basically finishing the last part of the journey on the web that we all agreed on in the 90s, which is uh, the web was supposed to be decentralized. We're not supposed to be all controlled by two or three cloud vendor. If you look at the world we are now, right? We're at a place where over a third of the Western Internet's infrastructure runs on Amazon. Okay, If it doesn't run on Amazon, that one third, then it'd be on Google, it'd be on uh, Microsoft. That, that wasn't the way that we have you know, designed the web to do. We designed the web to be very efficient and with very little idle computing. Even the computer that I'm on right now, we're only running Zoom. I'm not doing anything else. The rest of the compute and the storage should be usable you know, safely by the rest of the needs so that we don't have any wasted energy. So meeting Edith was um, very, very unique. And then through her, you know, um, I was already really very, very much interested in crypto and Web3. And I was able to meet the founders of Solana, for example. And I got totally hooked. This is just like what I've done my whole life, except decentralized. So with that, then it kind of evolved. And then um, uh, Chris McCann, my other um, uh, partner, we're also advising. He was also one of the very early investors in Solana. And then somehow the three of us really have clicked and we have decided that said, you know, if we want to complete this world, we kind of need two major pieces um, and three major things to happen. One, obviously, the decentralization of the Internet. So that's not what people are thinking, just like some DeFi protocol, but it truly is the infrastructure wise. We'll be able to do, let's say, a new social app fully decentralized, not controlled by one set of servers, by one set of people but it will be controlled by the people that are actually communicating with the news and those servers uh, and those execution are fully decentralized as well. So people literally will have control in executing, you know, sending the messages and, and, and protecting the messages and validating them, you know, so knowing that the truth is being sent around, at least that people agree those are the truth. So to, to me, that's critical, you know, and you've seen what's happening with the gaming space. Um, it makes perfect sense that assets are written in a contract where you can take it from one game to another game to another game. So you see the use cases, let alone obviously now NFT are heavily used for identifying uh, collectible assets and things like that. So, so that was one mission that we knew uh, we onto something, the decentralized internet, final frontier of the work that we set out to do in the 90s. The second one, it's equally important that obviously we experience it every day, which is what I call predictive computing. So everything that we do now, whatever you do on the web or you do on mobile, uh, machine learning and recommendation generation is super crucial. So every app that you have, it's, um, it's telling you what you may, need next, you may need next. Like you go to a destination and obviously they're waiting for you to go back to where you're from. Or you buy something on Amazon, it will tell you what likely would be the goods that you wanted to buy. Um, but we are getting very close where these recommendations through machine learning tooling uh, would be able to make decisions for us. So if you have, uh, if you can only almost imagine maybe years from now, but, you know, five years, six years, seven years from now, most of the applications will not need your instrumentation. It will just run for you. But, I mean, seriously, I think about it. Why would you need um, to go out of the place, hit looking for a car, committed to this car, wait for the guy to come by and get in the car after you get done with the meeting? The car should be waiting outside. And that would be more efficient for the driver, more efficient for energy use, 
much more efficient for use. So if learning is going to be that good, then this can happen. So this is, um, I wrote a paper last year called predictive computing. It's something I've been working on almost my whole life is to be able to get a large data set, structure and non-structure, learn, um, and compoundly learn and perfect the learning itself and ultimately make a decision for you. So between predictive computing and web-free, uh, we invest only at the infrastructure level. So the three of us are constantly are not only looking and talking to founders, uh, but the three of us, first, with a set of advisors, design the architecture of what all the pieces will be needed to make these two things happen. And by the way, as we uh, invest in more company, we found more synergy between the two because a lot of the web-free deployment are still using Kubernetes and they are deploying it on the cloud, right? So it's semi decentralized but obviously, as a compute needed to be efficient, they may be on some centralized places you know, in the beginning. So the, all these actions um, has you know allowed the three of us to meet really the most remarkable people looking for the pieces to fill this architecture to make this into a reality. So that way of investing is almost like running a company, except you're constantly looking for young talent that are fulfilling a specific thing to make this whole thing a reality. So... Well, our fund, when it's said and done, by the time that we return capital back to our LP, the world should be changed, right? So we're almost engineering the world to change through investing. My next question on that line would be that, why invest in seed or pre-seed startups, right? And what is that you look for when you're investing in people? Because at that point, you're investing in an idea and the people. Dorian, that's a very, very good question. I'm lucky enough that I was able to travel the journey both when I was a son and then at BEA, basically from end to end, from very super early stage. You know, I, BEA was the first employee, the first guy to open the door. And all the way until um, we went public, did multiple subsequent offerings, um, and that and you know other things made the company super profitable and high cash, cash generations, and then an acquisition. So I saw the whole picture. And then at some point in life, I said, well, hopefully one thing I've earned is to be able to do the things I love the most. Then I look back in that journey, without doubt, the earliest day was the most fun because that's you're at the highest stake because if it doesn't take off, it dies. And most of them die, right? So most earliest stage startup, they may, may have a very good idea. Maybe the timing's not right. They may have a perfect idea. They cannot execute. They may have a perfect idea, but it's just that no one is interested. The channel model does not work. So there's so many variations. And few people really know how to do this well. So the three of us, first of all, are startup mentality people. We interact extremely frequently, move very, very quickly. That's our compatibility. And you have to have built tremendous trust, right? But when you have large organization, you have process. When you have very small company, you have to you have to be mavericks. You have to be able to hit it and and do magical things. Um, but that's the process. Ultimately, I look in the mirror at myself. I said, that's what I love. And I want to do that. And I want to be with people that are doing this every day. And hopefully, um, uh, I add experience um, and help them and provide you know, my uh, guidance and support and embrace. It's a very lonely job. Um, I, I always say startup founders are probably the loneliest people. Because uh, there are so many things that goes wrong on a daily basis. And you, you don't have big adoption and revenue backing you. So it's the most painful. So being able to embrace those founders 
and help them in various ways. So obviously I provide um, a lot of, um, I would say, you know, mental support, experience support, um, process support, and those kind of things to the founders. Edith is the most amazing, well-connected um, and experienced investors. So she, she helps them in that fashion. And Chris probably is one of the smartest, um, most hands-on, technically driven, real-time, you know, can really get in the groove of these people, type investors. So the three of us all bring unique things to the table to help these founders. So to me, that's the way, that's the thing that I love to do the most along with my two co-founders. So uh, we do it this way. And every day, all day long, we have to meet the earliest stages of the company. We invest in the earliest stages of the company. My next question is more conceptual or macro level. Could you simplify the world of software infrastructure as well as what is now called Web3 for our listeners? Karan, you know, I, for most of my life, if I walked around here in Silicon Valley and run into some friends, I think the first image that I think of is I'm the plumber for Silicon Valley for, for computing. Almost all of my life, I've been building um, software that I like. If you think of the analogy would be the guy who has a belt with tools on their waist and you, they crawl under and start building all the piping and all the wiring that's needed to be able to build structure on top of whether it's a house or it's a commercial building. So that's the stuff that I like for many reasons because um, if you do that right, it enables generally a model of computing that will uh, derive much higher level of productivity and efficiency. For example, when we when someone builds an application today, obviously you assume it runs on the web. So if it doesn't run on the web, why bother, right? And you also will assume it runs on mobile, right? So it's on their mobile phone. So that's a given. It's only because the infrastructure software below are now very complete, not only for developing the application, but for deploying and operating the application and scaling the application itself. So all of that software below what you see as a general application, those are all infrastructure. And infrastructure you've done right, ultimately, it will induce a new generation of how people will be building applications itself. Um, it's a never-ending job, but yet at the same time, new infrastructure some, uh, software sometimes can get introduced. Like, for example, like Android or iOS. Those are new infrastructure software along with the whole environment with app source and other things will allow a new generation of apps to proliferate into the marketplace. But for us, we primarily focus on basically the enterprise and the service side of software infrastructure, plumbing for commercial applications to run at scale. So that's one part. So that's what we love to do, and that's what we focus on. We find the earlier stage company that fits into the architecture that we put together that we think will be what the next generation of application will need. Web3, in the context of the following, that's really only one major distinction from the race capital perspective for Web2 and Web3. Web2 is what we use today, which is like the apps that we're using to do this podcast. I'm actually on a web page. I'm communicating with you. You have all the tooling in front of you to record and future and to edit, and you can actually cut and reconnect and all kinds of good stuff. So that's web-based, but obviously the server that contains this entire uh, podcast recording and all the future editing are centralized. What Web3 does, it does it very differently. It does not need that. 
So we use a model where nodes can be run, and all you have to do, the nodes responsible, is to run the validator. So a single transaction can now be split into pieces, and then they are validated by many points. So first of all, it's great because security-wise, obviously this is the utmost way, the best way to secure a transaction or secure a transfer of data. That'll be the best. Number two is you can see what it will evolve to over time where validation doesn't have to be done on large cloud. It can be done on a little server under your desk and eventually it will move to the edge where it will run on uh, idling resources we have on our desktop. And basically anything that people are not using, we don't waste any of the energy or recycle those energy to use for this model. So it's a wonderful model. And uh, it's really where the internet needs to go to. And it will enable a very different type of applications where you don't need to have a central point of approval. Like all of our big messaging apps, social media applications today are run centrally, you know, in a set of servers that are controlled by a single company. We, we certainly, I think by now we all know we don't like that model, right? But we, we complain a lot about the people that are deciding what should go through, what should not go through, what's fake news, what's not fake news. But imagine this would be owned and validated by the people, right? Distributed. We call them a DAO. Um, it would be magical when that happens. And it's pretty much guaranteed that this is actually will become a reality at some point. So Web3 is magical from the perspective where it's kind of think of it as a last frontier. This two generations of web kind of evolution, it will get to a point where it really will be able to be super efficient and highly secure. And you can write all kinds of applications on this. Another interesting thing that I came across was a recent interview you did with Bloomberg, where you mentioned that some of the best VC investments came right after the market crashes. And given the current US economy environment, I think this is a relevant question. Why do you think that market downturns present such an opportunity for VC investors? Um, I think you have to first think about how tech um, works and why tech has been so um, miraculous in the way that it's give birth reach new heights, new heights, and then uh, it have very short cycles. So no other industry that we have seen, whether it's in transportation and banking, that would have such quick involvement like tech. And so the investment in the tech obviously has a lot to do with it, which is we over-invest in tech because we can't wait, we're so excited, because it can yield growth like we have never seen. As we know, especially in the equity market, growth trumps everything, right? So when a company is growing really fast, we could care less, in, at least initially, about how much cash it generates, how profitable it is. Most of them are not profitable, but we give them a pass. It's because we're so addicted to growth because that's making changes in the world. It's enabling new ways of doing things. I mean, imagine getting through COVID. We have no DoorDash. We have no, none of, no banking application. We have no Zoom. We have none of these applications. So we know how critical technology is for us, you know, to make available and get into maturation in a very short period of time. So the problem with that is obviously the cycle. You know, if it's if if you overinvest so quickly, that means there'll be speculations around. So eventually, you know, the bubble will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So in tech, we always have a bubble to propel the next generation of development. Bubble then tends to burst. Now, um, so what we're seeing is actually a very interesting phenomenon right now. So generally, tech cycle is about 10 years, plus or minus a year or two. So if you look at the 90s tech bubble, and then they bursted in April 2000, 
And then it has nothing to do with tech. But then by 2000, we have a financial crisis that obviously everything got bursted. Tech went with it. And then the next cycle was where we see new generation applications like um, now we see the Coinbase, the Uber, the Airbnb, and all of the you know, these kind of new generation application. And then we saw, you know, uh, you know, another bubble bursting again, you know, this year. So Web3, approximately 10 years. Web2, Web approximately 10 years. Web3 is much more interesting. The cycle even shorter. The cycle is shorter because of one very simple thing. Cycle is shorter is because the way that we incentivize people to use the crypto protocols, you know, the different levels of software is just a token. So it's almost like if you decide to use my software, I'm going to give you an incentive. It's great because then it um, induces adoption a lot quicker in this process. The problem is obviously speculator comes in even faster. So we have even more speculator coming in because there's free money almost giving away in this process. So that's good and bad. So that cycle we've been seeing is only like three years long. So we have already seen 2019, there was a crash. 2022, there's a crash. So for investors, now, when do you see the best company? So if you look back in, you know, uh, in the history of tech, almost all the greatest company are formed within the 24, 28 months um, timeframe after a major bubble bursting. So that's the two reasons for that. One is valuation. Um, when some, when a bubble burst come back to reality. So now it's easier. To get in a deal, otherwise you're fighting with so many people to get into one single investment. That's one big thing. The second thing is, think about the entrepreneurs. This is actually the most important part. So the entrepreneurs, that obviously, when monies are freely flowing to a point where it's almost like it's everywhere, right now people throwing money at every idea, then everyone, lots of people can become an entrepreneur because the barrier to entry is very, very low. But that doesn't yield the best founders. So when time gets tough, the people still want to do it. Wow. Now you have distinctive, you know, remarkable founders almost to me is bubbling up onto the top. It's easier to spot. So with, you know, a downturn where you have valuation getting back to reality, remarkable founders bubbling up. So for us to fill our architecture in many ways, it's much, much easier. So all the biggest success I have in investing over two plus decade in my life in a small, you know, very early stage company, or soon after the bubble, one or two years, so I know that's really is the golden moment for investing. And I think so far it's been the truth. You know, like FTX was invested, you know, when, you know, no one would be investing in them because the market was so bad in crypto, right? Now you look back and say, oh my God, you know, how, how dumb were we? You know, that was such a great idea. Of course, in ret retro retroactively, when you look back, it become obvious. But looking forward or just without a doubt, having a crash, they give great reset and have a fresh look but you have to be very active to be able to get these best deals. What are some recent investments that you made that you're really excited about? We have, um, uh, in total, we have done 12 investments so far in 2022. And um, it, it's, a, it's a remarkably exciting time from the following perspective. I think we're in the final stretch, number one, and seeing really the wave of predictive computing is happening in the market. These fully automated uh, type of application. And I can almost smell and see, you know, a few years from now, we'll start seeing these fully headless applications where the application, all you have to do is just install that you say, I sign up. And you will not, you don't need the instrument at all. It'll automatically run for you. So 
right now the only type of application that we see would be like a TikTok. You know, obviously that feature with the video or is Cruise or Waymo would be driving autonomous car. Those are all you know fully machine learned, self teaching type application. But we're going to see every kind of application that will be doing very similar things. So uh, that's super exciting. So we invested in some very interesting company this year so far, and um, they, you know they varies from um, storing and handling uh, data in Web three. So because you're decentralized, so it's a whole different methodology in terms of data management. So that's new. Uh, we invested in a company, a bundler. We're very excited about that. Very smart, uh, remarkable founders. Uh, we invested early on in a whole uh, new generation type uh, analytics uh, technology and um, solving a few major problems that we have seen flawed in terms of how to do web analytics. Uh, I uh, found that um, came out Adobe is very, very um, really smart and grounded individual that he built a tool called Umami. So that was uh, one of our um, uh, great investment this year. He has already got millions and millions of people that have downloaded and used the software. Um, even before we actually um, given money and, um, and, you know, basically building a hosted version and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was remarkable. So um, uh, we are seeing both on the Web 2 and Web 3 side uh, some really very, very, very cool stuff that we've been um, going after. Very recently, we just invested in a company called Semetic. Semetic is a company that does um, basically found uh, it came out of Cruise. And uh, it's a full um, visual environment for you to build machine learning model. And you can do testing, you can do development, and then you can actually mutate a model and then build an alternative model immediately and fork it and start running an alternative model, merging the models itself and keep refining models to get to, you know, the type of learning and, you know, that, you know, that kind of things that you needed to, the maturation that you needed for. So very exciting about that. You know, so those kind of companies, we're seeing some very, very good stuff actually seen since the crash in May. So it's a great time. You of all people know that building a quality organization takes quality people. So my next question is, is race capital hiring? If yes, what is that you look for in potential colleagues? Race capital, in fact, is hiring. So um, I uh, oftentimes tell my colleagues and tell our founders, you know, talk about this on TV, that um, building a venture firm is exactly just like building a startup. Now, obviously, building a startup, you have more as the company get more successful, for sure, you need more engineering team to support the software. You need your customers to be successful. You need to be concerned about your churn. Uh, you need um, you know legal people to help you on a contract, all that kind of stuff. Venture firm is much simpler. Uh, venture firm does not need that level of staff because you're not constantly, say, growing your channel. So in venture firm, however, the most important thing is to be able to identify these companies that fits into the architecture that we've developed, right? And the more company that we are exposed to, the higher the chance that we'll be able to find the right one. In many ways, in my uh, mind, is is the it's exactly like running a company. So when I was running BEA, we're constantly are looking for a company to acquire for the following reason, because there's almost no way for you to have that level of passion and knowledge and be so specific about new technology in a large company. That's why large companies are looking to buy smaller company because those innovations are generally happen because you have extremely passionate people about doing a specific thing. So putting myself in the shoes of investing, oftentimes I look at it the same way I say, okay, 
we want to build out all these pieces so a new model will emerge in the marketplace. So instead of building them, we want to go out and buy these companies. So that interaction with the founder become very interesting. You say, oh, wow, this founder has all the right element to build this piece. Except in our case, we don't buy the whole company. We only buy a percentage of the company. We, the economics still are with all the founder, which is the way it's supposed to be, right? Otherwise, why would somebody be so passionate building what they needed to build and take it to the marketplace? So uh, with that in mind, so uh, we are hiring uh, people uh, always in with strong engineering skill, in being able to do research, uh, what are the new things in the marketplace, and people that really will have affinity to kind of put themselves in the shoes of the founder, then you can relate. It's much easier then is for the founders to open themselves up to want to work with us, then they understand what value we can add. The other thing is you can reduce error because you have very technical people. You'd be able to download packages, you know, immediately be able to run the packages, do tests, so you know what the what they are purportedly uh, are, are trying to build is real, right? So most of the technology that we invest in, uh, there's a big open source component. So open source component, you're fully exposed. Whether people like it, they don't like it, they will have reviews, they will have likes, and they will have forks. So if you don't have those things, they will not become popular. So having technical people is crucial. So we have um, a, a remarkable individual working for us now that actually was the founder that we were able, we were able to pick up to become kind of like our resident engineer investor. Uh, Bernard, Bernard is the name, but really is one of the smartest and the brightest people I've ever met. And we are looking for more of these people, that's for sure. And the other thing is, just like any other company, we have um, you know finance, legal, and back office operations. That's also just crucial because you want to run a fund with extremely the highest bond governance, right? Because we are managing other people's money, not just ours. So that's uh, that's also just crucial. And to support our founders, they have multiple facets of things. We don't pretend we are large firms. We can help everybody on everything. But there are specific, very important things that we must lend a hand, you know, like me personally giving, you know, spending time with the founders on a regular basis, you know, listening to them, right, sharing my experience with them. Those are all crucial things. So we often are looking for people that will have these kind of experiences in helping us. So we are hiring for sure. Yeah. My next question is more around industry trends. I would love to get your opinion on what are some trends within fintech that you are particularly bullish and or bearish on. Fintech uh, is uh, a very, very, very interesting space. Fintech is interesting space because it's so old. Our banking institution, you know, our um, you know, everything that has to do our trading institutions, uh, they've been around for a very, very long period of time, and. Um, we know that the middleman uh, process, despite all the innovation along with the many, many years that happened, have not been the most optimal. And at the same time, we know that um, peer-to-peer type transactions happens all day long, except systematically. We don't have enough technology to support that. So Web3 really brings a um, unique, very unique opportunity for us to transform, I wouldn't say all, but a lot of our current state of fintech into this new structure that will allow a lot more things like lending to be done on a one-to-one basis, or for sure, payment will be direct from merchant into the individual or from individual to individual. Who doesn't want that, right? So we know that those are important things that we know that innovation can help 
you know, like to be far more effective. We have seen where they're in countries that their own currency have become so dysfunctional that a stable uh, type cryptocurrencies has been got sent in terms of keeping places functional along the way. Remote um, areas in countries where, you know, there's really no banking services unless you will have to go through a plane, train, or automobile to be able to get it, uh, to be able to sign up to do it. Um, being able to do that, you know, remotely on a computer, on your phone is going to be very crucial. We'll lower the barrier to adopt for a lot of the fintech services. Uh, I'm talking about also including like insurance or other things. So that part is extremely exciting. We see the, I would say the very first phase of what's going to be evolving into, you know, this very exciting industry, which is DeFi, right? So, which is from fintech to DeFi. So I'm very bullish about that. Obviously, we know that there are hacks, there are issues, you know, uh, this industry needs regulations, but everything does, right? How do we actually get uh, all, uh, what you know, existing fintech industry to be regulated as takes time. So I think uh, the smart country, the smart regulators are doing a lot of remarkable things to slowly and making this happen. For my last segment, what I'd like to do is introduce my guest as an individual and as a person to my listeners, right? And for that, I like to have a quick rapid fire round of questions with you. My first question is, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? Um, I'm addicted to work. Um, I work, if I don't get, you know, 16 hours, 17, 18 hours a day in the work, I just don't function. And my big hobby is cars. You know, I love uh, mechanical things, even though I can't really do it well. But um, I really love mechanical things and cars in particular. I love. How do you work so much? Are there any secret productivity apps that we should know to be more efficient at what we do? This is also, I've learned this because I have young partners. And um, on my desk, uh, this is a new way of how people work, right? I have um, Telegram, Twitter, Discord. Slack, uh, iMessage, Signal, uh, WhatsApp, everything is running on my desk. And those short spurt of people sending you a message and responding instantly is the expectation. It's tough, isn't it? without a doubt. I mean, this is a disruptive, which is my challenge. On top of it, I'm still getting as many emails as I was in the past, right? That's really the mundane structure type, you know, uh, respond, correspondent I have to do. So I'm busy with that. But um, I have a habit that, you know, I take care of every single email. I re- reply to every single message by the end of the night. I try to really try to do that really, really hard every single day. So I start with a clean day. And then so I can focus on the work for the day and spending time with my founders and, and talking to new uh, potential founders and all that. Um, but I would say get used to it because um, instant message, you know, in every form has become probably the most crucial communication tools that people are using. And it's not going to be centralized in one single thing. A lot of people have tried, but expect to have a lot of things on your desktop. One very fascinating thing that I learned about you is that Ben Horowitz from Anderson Horowitz wrote a famous article called The CEO CEO, right? I would love to know, how has your relationship with Mr. Horowitz evolved over time? Ben's a very good friend, and I think he's way too kind. I'm uh, humbled. Uh, that he called me that, you know, it was uh, something that he wrote. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't know that he was going to do that. That was also quite a few years ago. It evolved a lot. You know, when I first met Ben uh, through Mark Andreessen, you know, um, he was uh, actually, Mark was at the time, uh, he was founder of Netscape. So it will make sense because I was running BEA 
and Microsoft and Netscape. So um, they own the world of the browser. And then obviously we're starting to have overlap between what we were doing uh, going into the web application server field. And then we became very good partners. And then uh, this friendship with Mark and then, you know, Lassa for, you know, until now, you know, he's a big supporter of what I'm working on now. Ben was his product manager that was responsible for doing all the enterprise stuff. And that's how I met Ben was from that long ago. And when Ben became the CEO of uh, Opsford, which got sold to HP, uh, we oftentimes would share ideas and do things together and have a meal. And then over time, we just became better, better friends. And then when they first started on Dresden Horrids, I became an early LP into the fund. I love the way that they, how they were doing things. And um, now this thing is very, very large. So, uh, friendship evolved, you know, and, um, I still talk to Ben occasionally, you know, um, you know, and catch up with him. I send him an emails uh, from time to time. I talk to him all the time. Um, I look at him as a very crucial mentor for what I'm working on now, right? Because they obviously has been through, um, this building a very, very successful venture fund. And that's very helpful in knowing, you know, all the pitfalls coming into building a thing from scratch. People were very skeptical what they were doing in 2008, 2009, because it was very crowded. And who needs a new venture fund? And I felt, you know, in 2019, I kind of have that same reaction from people. They said, well, we have, I don't know, a thousand uh, seed funds. Why do we need another one? Right. So well, how are you going to differentiate? And we went about doing things very, very differently. You know, I think. Um, if you talk to our founders, that's what they will tell you. You know, so, you know oh, this is why race is so different. It's because uh, it's a it's a very tight embrace, and they really help me get things off the ground. You know, the liftoff process. And um, Ben's been um, a great advisor in this in this in this process. So um, I'm very very thankful. And you know, and why you do things in when you do them, uh, you look at some of the remarkable company they have backed and the way they went about doing it. That means you're picking the perfect timing and you go, you know, all your way outside of the boundaries and do exceptional things and, you know, remarkable things happen. So um, that I have to take my hat off to uh, Ben, you know, Ben and Mark, actually, of what they have accomplished. And um, we have a lot to do to be able to get to that level of success. Yeah. My next question is something I've personally wondered, and I even touched upon this before we started recording. You have won so many awards. You have achieved highest level professional success. Why do you still work so hard? I think I said this already, which is um, at the end of the day, when you don't really have to do it anymore, I think a lot of people would choose multiple paths, which is really take it very easy. And um, I think I was naively thinking maybe venture capital was one of those, you know, you can take an easier kind of role. But I think I soon find out it wasn't at all. It was super, super hard work. I mean, like there's so many facets of, building a venture firm is, is, is actually very similar because we have invested also um, and um, we have customers. Our customers really primarily would be you know, our founders and the process of the building itself, we still do a lot of technical architecture, downloading packages and running stuff. It's really like a startup. And I think the competitive nature in me drove me into I'm wanting to do more, 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 and more constantly and faster and faster and faster and faster. And I look back, I said, if I have a, my typical day that I got to see 10 companies, new companies, I got to have free one-on-ones with three different founders. I got to do some stuff to um, further refine our back office process and meet a few LP, which I know you add up the hours, doesn't work, right? 
you know, like obviously in COVID, when this half hour meeting was terrific. If I actually get all of that, I got so exhausted and I got clunked out two seconds when I when I get in bed. Oh, I have a very good day, and I wake up in the morning. I got to do it again. I, I, I tell you, I'm so addicted to. It. I mean, I, I'm now talking like a like one of our young founders, you know. So, and you ask them why do they do what they do is because uh, it, it's it's the only thing they didn't know how to do. So, to me, uh, the satisfaction of seeing a company becoming very successful, you know, FTX, Solana, and some of those. There's no satisfaction like that. And now I know I don't even have to run those company and still feel the level of success that they have. That's very good stuff. It really is. My last question for you is that what advice would you give young graduates who want to enter into venture capital? Would you recommend they directly join funds or would you recommend that they gain operating experience first? Without a doubt, missing a chance to be involved in a startup, whether you Create one, found one. Are you uh, early employee in a startup? You work for a startup. It's an experience that no one should miss. Uh, most of the university now spends so much of the resource in teaching entrepreneurship in the university itself. A uh, building startup center for people to go experiment um, this concept of being an entrepreneur. So I think it will be a sin and uh, and really a miss if someone don't go try a build you know to be participating in the startup. I think venture capital, our job is to not only thoroughly understand every bit of how a startup function so that we can be helpful, but to be able to spot them and know which one. Because in, in early stage investment, we're just investing in the people. So how do you know, you know, with their background, what have, what have they done uh, and, you know, why they have such conviction in doing what they're doing? How do they relate to the technology that they want to develop? as crucial thing, uh, crucial skills as a venture capitalist. So if you don't work in the industry, this will be very hard. So I would definitely encourage um, uh, people to uh, go through a startup. And if they find out that they will be better in uh, having a span of control, working with a lot of startups, then venture capital is a perfect place for them. right? And which is why I found uh, at this stage of my life is probably the biggest joy is to span the control to be able to be touching so many variations or startup at the very same time and giving them different advices for different circumstances. And to do that, you kind of have to know what they do, right? You can be able to relate to them. So I, I mentioned Bernard earlier on the, on this podcast, because he was a founder, this is second nature to him in the lingual that he used in the way that he engaged them, the way that he has a first meeting with these uh, new, new remarkable founders because of that. So I highly encourage that with all that. Yeah. It's a go through a startup, and if you find out that you want a larger span of control, then venture is definitely the perfect place for you. Yeah. On that note, Alfred, I'll let you get back to work. But thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you, Duran. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Walt in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.